just a couple of explanatory things. What we've done so far, for those of you who have not been here, is we've gone through um, largely the inception of medical missionary work and then the problems and challenges that uh, afflicted Dr. Kellogg, which then led him to afflict the church uh, in, a <laughs> in return. Um, and uh, the purpose of our time this afternoon is to basically the idea of picking up the pieces. It all blew apart 100 years ago. What can we do with it now? Um, and uh, so that's, that's kind of the, the background for those who may not have had that, been here for the other meetings. But let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the privilege and the opportunity of directing our attention to your lessons and your ideals. Help us to be wise, to gather up the pieces, that nothing be lost. Help us to um, make sure steps forward in the future, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, <clears throat> learn the lessons, get it right. That may be a little optimistic. I tend to be a cynic at heart after having read as much history as I am. I, I don't hold my breath on anything working right. But uh, nonetheless, I think there's a chance. So let's do it. <laughs> Start off with a little review. Dr. Kellogg was converted in 1888 and soon began working in benevolent lines. This was an essential work that the churches had left undone. Some ministers rejected health reform, criticized the kind of work Kellogg was doing, and made war upon him in order to build themselves up. That's quoting Ellen White. Dr. Kellogg began to fight back, belittling the ministry, seeking to make his work into a monument to himself. The disunity between the gospel ministers and the medical missionary workers placed on our churches the worst evil that can be placed there. Both the Battle Creek Sanitarium and the Reverend Herald Publishing House were providentially destroyed as the Lord tried to get the leaders of these two institutions to do the work represented in the 58th chapter of Isaiah. And that's important because the 58th chapter of Isaiah is the medical missionary chapter. Dr. Kellogg was eventually disfellowshipped. The denomination moved quickly away from the benevolent work. Meanwhile, you know, one thing I like about the Lord is that he's never really caught by surprise. <laughs> it's, it's a good thing. Um, before the whole Kellogg thing dissolved, the Lord was working. After her return to the United States in September 1900, Ellen White began to strongly emphasize the need to take the gospel to the large cities. City evangelism was to feature, among other things perhaps, organized companies of workers, young men and women, both medical missionary work and the third angel's message. The promise was that this method would bring the breath of life back into the churches, and it worked in the one place it was tried until it was all destroyed in the San Francisco earthquake of 1906. Um, that's not a complete list, and we went through the list of what all they had in San Francisco yesterday. Suffice it to say that they had a lot going on, and Ellen White said it was a, a good start. <laughs> the primary tool, which is to make all this happen, was a new school out in California, the College of Medical Evangelists. God even went to the trouble of rewriting California's medical licensure law so that CME could be legally recognized as a new and unique school of medical practice. And we were promised that proper city work would generate means to sustain all the enterprises for missionary work that we could carry forward. That's the, I don't mean to be mercenary, but that's a huge promise. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a big deal. Um, yeah, it is. But because of disgust for Kellogg and his messy benevolent work, CME was eventually developed as a regular medical school regulated by the AMA. Okay. Um, this was not an intentional sabotaging of the Lord's work. This was just the natural reaction of human beings. You know, a lot of the ministers had criticized Kellogg's benevolent work from the very beginning and 
They just didn't like Kellogg. And so it's real normal. If, if somebody is giving you nothing but a pain in the neck, you want to distance yourself from him and everything he stands for. It's not a good thing. But when was normal with the human race good, you know? So it's, to me, it's not a, not a big mystery, okay? Um, as far as can be seen from the written records, it was actually the president of the General Conference who was most outspoken in opposing the idea of developing a uniquely Adventist medical education. His comment was that without AMA recognition, the College of Medical Evangelists wouldn't be worth a nickel. Um, this, I think, you know, this was a, I, I believe, was an unfortunate failing on the part of A.G. Daniels. Um, he had been, interestingly enough, prone to a similar sort of an, of an issue, and Ellen White had used the same terminology with him once before. Uh, if any of you remember the story of Avondale, when Daniels and Ellen White were both in Australia and they were wanting to start the school, and she was pointing towards this tract of land, and you know the Lord is signaling this is the tract of land, but A.G. Daniels and Willie White both suggested that they get an agricultural assessment from the state agricultural expert or whatever. And so the guy came out, did some soil tests, and gave them the results. And the story is that he said, if a bandicoot, which is sort of a marsupial rabbit, I guess, if, if a jackrabbit wanted to go across that property, he'd have to pack his own lunch because <laughs> it's, it's terrible property. And interestingly enough, when the report came back in the mail, Willie and Arthur Daniels read it, and it was like, Who's going to tell your mom? <laughs> you know, and you tell them. No, you tell You tell, you tell you know? Eventually, they came walking in together, and one of the other—I don't remember who it was—said, uh, you know, either Sister White or Mother, whichever it was. You know, we have something here you might want to look at. She took it and she looked at it. She read it, and she looked up at them and sweetly said, "Is there no God in Israel that we would inquire of the God of Ekron?" And that was the same terminology she used about those who were interested in seeking the AMA and the God of Ekron. Okay, she never said AMA. She never said that. But it's awful hard to miss it when you read it all. <laughs> so anyhow, I would say that Arthur Daniels made a mistake. And if I had never made one, I'd be quick to pick up a rock and throw it at him. <laughs> but I think it probably behooves us to be charitable in our assessment of things and just get on with life. Okay, why is this important? I just like this quote. As religious teachers, we are under obligation to God to teach the students how to engage in medical missionary work. Okay. Um, so, let's start in with some specifics. The idea here is what pieces can we pick up? How do we make this happen? What are the techniques, what are the specifics we can possibly use to get back closer to where we might have, should have been? So let's start in with vegetarian restaurants. Something I'm involved with myself, so, you know, I like them. June 28, 1877 was the seed planting on the vegetarian restaurant idea. Uh, actually, what happened is that Barnum and Bailey, or maybe it was just Barnum at the time, brought the circus to Battle Creek. And the, um, the populace was worried. Because bear in mind, you have no TV, you have no movies, you had no you know, iPods and CD players, anything else. And so anything that comes to town that smells like entertainment is going to be rapidly, you know, rapidly draw the populace. Okay? And they were worried because past experience would show that people would come in from all the surrounding countryside spend the day at the circus, and that afternoon, evening, they'd all hit the bars, and you'd have a bunch of drunken guys shooting up the town. And this was a serious concern. Okay? Well, um, in, the, in that setting, the Battle Creek Adventist ladies set up a 50-foot table and sold hygienic food. Uh, we'd call it vegetarian food, probably. But, you know. um, and they served 
had things to drink and things to eat and whatnot, and they averted a crisis for the city of Battle Creek. They kept people out of the bars, kept things stable. The, the, the uh, civic leaders loved them for it, and lots of people thought, what a wonderful thing, and they even liked the food. It was said that the best food was at the Advent tent. Okay? Well, just think what you could do if you had a restaurant every day. That's what planted the seed. Okay? Um, soon after coming back from, uh, to America, um, there we go, get another date up there. That's when she came back. Okay. Ellen White began to voice concern about the restaurant work. There had been quite a few restaurants started, but as soon as she got back to America and it started touching bases with it, she expressed some concern. This culminated in quite a speech, actually, on the 23rd of September, 1905. In this speech, she spoke of a number of problem areas plaguing the, the restaurant work. It had been taking young people away from more specifically evangelistic lines of work, for one. She says, why is there such a dearth of laborers in these important lines of work? Our young people choose to labor in some place where they can live without any particular exercise of their minds spiritually. The restaurants offer a free field for such individuals. The restaurants had kind of gotten sidetracked into running a business. And the idea of having, you know, a nice Adventist kid that would work, you know, seemed to be enough for them. Um, it's not. <laughs> it's an extremely dangerous thing to do, to, to put your young people into a group of Adventist young people that is not specifically religious or spiritual. I mean, you know, um, just speaking from my perspective as a school teacher, the absolute last thing I'm interested in doing is taking any age group of kids, putting them into a homogenized group of however many, and then allowing them more than 30 seconds of unsupervised time without an adult, you know. When I was teaching, I, I, you know, I, <laughs> I told people, I told the kids, I told the school board, I told everybody, I said, listen, this is, these kids are out of my sight under exactly one set of circumstances. They're female and they're in the bathroom. That's the only time they're out of my sight. You know? And I just firmly believe that's an important thing and I would stress that. Um, check into these programs because some of them are good, some of them are not, frankly. Okay? Got summer canvassing programs, some of them are wonderful. Uh, a good friend of mine and one of our board members is Eugene Pruitt, the guy that really almost single-handedly invented the summer canvassing program. Okay? Um, I love his programs. He runs really good programs. There are some others, not so good. So, take a caution. The vegetarian restaurants hadn't been looking after their workers. The manners of our restaurants are to work for the salvation of the employees. They are to devote their best powers to instructing their employees in spiritual lines, explaining the scriptures to them and praying with them and for them. They are to guard the religious interests of the helpers as carefully as parents are to guard the religious interests of their children. Um, I think that applies to all the other groups I just got done talking about. Unless our restaurants are conducted in this way, it will be necessary to warn our people against sending their children to them as workers. The managers of our restaurants must do more to save the young people in their employ. Every one of them needs to be sheltered by home influences. What they were doing is getting some kid from Ohio just making that up, you know. Say, hey, you want to work in the restaurant in San Francisco? So he goes out to San Francisco. And they say, okay, your hours are from here to here. Um, you probably want to find an apartment. Have a happy day. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> Not my kid. <laughs> so, you know, they were just letting these, sending these kids adrift. I mean, they kept them busy for eight hours a day or however long they worked. And other than that, they were just adrift in San Francisco. Not a good recipe. Did I miss something? No. Okay, there we go. Restaurants have become too absorbed in commercialism. I have been making inquiries to how many have been converted to the truth as a result of the work done by our restaurants. Can anyone inform me? And there was no response from the audience. And this was a group of restaurant workers she was addressing. As God's chosen people, our only work is to win souls and teach the gospel. But the restaurants are not doing this work. They never have done it. And they never can do it unless the workers are thoroughly converted to God. That's a challenge that I think of commonly. 
I do not say that all our restaurants should be closed, but as I have seen the situation, I have sometimes wished that circumstances would arise that would compel them to be closed. It seems almost an impossibility for us to place ourselves in such a position that the existing evils can be corrected. That's what carelessness can do. Do not allow that with your young people. Okay, let's look at medical ministry. Um, in uh, one of our last sessions, we looked at the need to keep our medical ministry work simple. That was largely in the context of financing it, okay, is what we were talking about. But God seldom does anything for only one reason. So here's another reason for keeping our medical missionary work simple. She says, as religious aggression subverts the liberties of our nation, those who would stand for freedom of conscience will be placed in unfavorable positions. For their own sake, they should, while they have opportunity, become intelligent in regard to disease, its causes, prevention, and cure. And those who do this will find a field of labor anywhere. There will be suffering ones, plenty of them, who will need help, not only among those of our own faith, but largely among those who know not the truth, okay? This is, oops, there we go. This is for their own sake. It's for our sake. She's telling us if you want to minimize or mitigate the persecution that's coming, right? Religious aggression subverts our liberties. That's how to win friends. Well, learn the simple remedies, right? Okay. Well, let's see. Let's go on. I wish to tell you that soon there will be no work in ministerial lines, but medical missionary work. Really? Really? None? Zero? It seems to be what she's saying. <laughs> if one could not carefully and, 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 um, and uh, creatively reinterpret the statement, that seems to be what she's saying. <laughs> I think it's what she means. Okay. But... Hmm. How does that all work? Okay. You might think that this means everyone but doctors and nurses will be out of the ministry business. Only medical missionary work, you know. So if you're not a doctor or a nurse, you're toast in that business. But not so. Okay? So let's look at the question of who we're talking about. Let our ministers, who have gained an experience in preaching the word, learn how to give simple treatments and then labor intelligently as medical missionary evangelists. So, who's that talking about? Preachers. Ministers. Okay. They should learn how to give simple treatments. It's a good idea. All gospel workers should know how to give the simple treatments that do so much to relieve pain and remove disease. Who are we talking about? Gospel workers. In every place the sick may be found, and those who go forth as workers for Christ should be true health reformers, prepared to give those who are sick the simple treatments that will relieve them, and then pray with them. Thus they will open the door for the entrance of the truth. Who is this? Maybe a little bit broader than even gospel workers. You know, workers for Christ? That's starting to sound more like laymen, maybe even. As the canvasser goes from place to place, he will find many who are sick. He should have a practical knowledge of the causes of disease and should understand how to give simple treatments that he may relieve the suffering ones. Who? Huh? Canvassers? Really? When was the last time we taught that? In the 58th chapter of Isaiah, the Lord tells us plainly what the work is that he requires of us. In order that our young people may be fully prepared to do this work, small sanitariums are to be connected with our schools. The students are to be taught how to use nature's simple remedies in the treatment of disease. So who are we talking about? Students. Well, okay. God's people are to be genuine medical missionaries. They are to learn to minister to the needs of soul and body. They should know how to give the simple treatments that do so much to relieve pain and remove disease. Who are we talking about? Okay, so there you have it. 
medical missionary is not for excuse me medical missionary work is not for everyone unless they happen to be a doctor a nurse a minister a gospel worker a canvasser a student or a church member if they fit into one of those categories, they need to learn how to give simple treatments that do so much to relieve pain and remove disease, okay? Well, fine. So that was the who. Let's go on to go on to the what here for a moment. What was the uh, common element in all those last statements? Simple treatments. Why would she recommend simple treatments? I'd like to suggest it's because they're simple. <laughs> yeah. Common? I was going to say because they're simple and so effective. Yeah, they are effective too. Um, she didn't want us doing surgery either. Yeah, probably lay surgery is not a good concept. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Although, I have to say this, she did say that every minister that goes overseas as a missionary should learn how to uh, handle surgical instruments so that he could do surgery when necessary. Yeah. Simple surgery, I think she maybe said, but it's, it's in there. She said that. Okay, well, God's remedies are the simple agencies of nature that will not tax or debilitate the system through their powerful properties. Pure air and water, cleanliness, proper diet, purity of life, and a firm trust in God are remedies for the want of which thousands are dying. Yet these remedies are going out of date because their skillful use requires, that, uh, requires work that the people do not appreciate. So what's wrong with simple remedies? Well, they take work. They take time, they take work. Um, that's what people don't like about them. It's so much easier to scribble an indecipherable uh, prescription that the patient then has to go to the trouble of going to the drugstore with. <laughs> it's like you don't even have to deliver the drugs. You just scribble on the paper. Um, now, let me say something at this point, and that is a, a disclaimer here. I do not oppose modern medicine. I love modern medicine. It's a great thing. I'm a big fan of all the science that they come out with. I, you know, I especially love trauma care. If I ever wrap myself around a telephone pole at 60 miles an hour, I don't want somebody giving me chamomile tea. Seriously. <laughs> I want somebody who's going to go out there and vacuum up every red blood corpuscle and put me back together. <laughs> I don't care what high-tech, fancy-schmancy, gidget-gadget gizmo they have to use to do it. You know, Rebuild me. I'm in favor of that. I think they do a great job at that. Lifestyle diseases? I'm not so fond of what they do. <laughs> I don't have so much uh, confidence in that. Okay, um, But just to keep it in perspective here, if you go to the CD-ROM and you type in or you do a search for simple remedies, you'll find that it's mentioned, uh, let's see, simple treatments, you'll find 41 hits. If you type in simple remedies, you'll get 78 times. And a lot of those are probably repetitious, to be honest, okay? Just to put that into context, if you type in Jesus, you get 37,000, <laughs> okay? If you type in God, you get 133,000, okay? Simple remedies do not have to be the entire focus of our life, but nonetheless, we're foolish if we ignore them, okay? That's my you know, summation. Okay, let's go on. There we go. Why, um, why simple treatments, though? Because they're simple, for one thing. But I'm going to offer a guess here uh, based off of this statement here. In the last scenes of this earth's history, war will rage. There will be pestilence, plague, and famine. The waters of the deep will overflow their boundaries. Property and life will be destroyed by fire and flood. And this is prior to the close of probation. Okay. It's my expectation that everything that we now look at as our existing medical system is going to crumble. I don't know what, I don't know when, I don't know exactly how, but I've gone to the trouble of giving you some suggestions as to how it might. Ever heard of this stuff? Methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus? Yeah, or however it's pronounced. I probably got that wrong, but I was close. Um, yeah, they don't have anything to treat that. It's not good stuff. XDRTB, 
extremely drug-resistant tuberculosis. You know, tuberculosis was at one point the leading killer in the United States prior to penicillin or whatever it was. I think probably penicillin. Um, XDR-TB is, I just read an article last week, it's getting incredibly out of hand in Eastern Europe at this point. Uh, it will be here. Don't fool yourself. This stuff, adenovirus serotype 14, mm, hasn't really made any big headlines lately, but uh, there were, uh, what was it, about 12 cases of it that they'd identified. And what made it scary is that it attacked health, otherwise healthy young adults, and it was running a, a mortality rate something like about 80%. You know, if that ever replicated and became pandemic, that would be serious stuff. Got the H5N1 that we heard a lot about a couple years ago. Got the H1N1, same sort of thing, okay? Any of these things, I believe, could swamp our existing medical structures, okay? I expect it to happen along with a lot of other problems and things that will destroy the things which stand in the way of God's people being able to minister to a needy world. Uh, to my mind, government health care is going to crash. Government unemployment, welfare, food stamps, all that system, that will all be overwhelmed in one way or another, freeing us for the chance to demonstrate that we are actually possessed of a spirit of godlike generosity. And I think it will require sacrifice. But we will have one shining moment where those who rise to the challenge will actually carry on medical missionary work much like Jesus did. That's my guess. Well, here's an interesting statement. The true, uh, excuse me, the true science, yeah. The study of surgery and other medical science receives much attention in the world. But the true science of medical missionary work, carried forward as Christ carried it, is new and strange to the denominational churches and to the world. But it will find its rightful place when, as a people who have had great light, Seventh-day Adventists awaken to their responsibilities and improve their opportunities. The problem with the situation is... It's still new and strange, a hundred years later to us, too. Okay, well, another little story here. Kind of shifting to a little different topic. During the night of February 27, 1910, the unworked cities were represented before me as a living reality, and I was plainly instructed that there should be a decided change from past methods of working. For months, the situation had been impressed on my mind, and I urged that companies be organized and diligently trained to labor in our important cities. Well... Hmm. After that vision, Ellen White went to Loma Linda. She gathered a group of administrators, and she laid this responsibility on their shoulders. She said, gospel, medical, missionary, evangelism. It's your responsibility. God will hold you accountable. Well, they were a committee. Committees never do anything but delegate. That's just the nature of the beast. So they picked a relatively new Adventist, only two years uh, been baptized, a former newspaper man, law student, gold prospector. He'd been converted in 1907 by reading Desire of Ages. You've probably never heard of him. His name is John H. N. Tyndall. He pioneered gospel medical missionary evangelism in California, Indiana, Virginia, Wisconsin, Oklahoma, and Texas. Elder Tyndall combined medical education with his gospel presentations, even though he wasn't a doctor. That's what he'd been trained to do. Oh, where was he trained to do that, you might ask? Oh, at a little school in Southern California that when he enrolled in 1908 was following this council. Lomaland is to be not only a sanitarium but an educational center for the training of gospel, medical, missionary evangelists. Well, um, Elder Tyndall went out with uh, a, a party of three, he and his wife and one other helper. We know that their first five evangelistic series, they averaged um, 24 baptisms per series, which is not too bad. Uh, a lot of people would probably be happy with that. After a while, though, after the first five, um, he went to the conference office and he said, we're not being faithful to the council. The council called for the formation of companies of evangelists. And the conference office answered him truthfully and said, we don't have any budget for that. 
Nonetheless, he got himself a company. And we know that in the next six, I think I've been telling people wrong this weekend, my apologies for that, but here's the actual figure. The next six evangelistic campaigns he held, he averaged 121 baptisms per series. Okay, I think I've been saying 126, so I'm guilty of exaggeration, my apologies. It's 121. Somebody was doing something right. That's so refreshing. How was he doing it? Who did he have here? Well, started off with Elder Tyndall himself, one medical helper, that was his wife, one Bible worker, okay? What he did is he recruited a team of volunteers. Okay. He got one businessman, one singer, six nurses, and 10 unspecified volunteers. Well, if you add those up, it comes to 18. So he had three paid positions and 18 volunteers, 21 people living off of three salaries, okay? That's what made that evangelistic team possible. And we'll find that that ratio is pretty well constant, okay? Um, he continued that work up until 1923. He encountered some uh, hostility out in California. There was a guy who got all bent out of shape and started attacking Tyndall um, and arguing and complaining and saying, uh, you know, this guy is talking about dietetics, but he's not a dietitian. He's not a doctor. So Tyndall decided maybe he'd go back to school and get a dietetics degree just to silence his critics. Um, he did so. He went to Loma Linda in 1923. While at Loma Linda, taking my training in dietetics, I had a very prominent man of our denomination say to me, John, what are you doing here? What do you expect to do studying dietetics? Do you think it right to leave your great work as an evangelist and come here and spend all this time studying dietetics? In reply to my good friend, I said, time will show the wisdom I plan, brother. Did you ever read in Testimonies Volume 9? There are some who think the question of diet is not of sufficient importance to be included in their evangelistic work, but such make a great mistake. Well, Elder Tyndall stuck with it, and uh, he graduated in 1905. Uh, let's see. There we go. That's his graduating class. Uh, actually, I think two of them are instructors, and uh, it's probably just the three in the middle that were the graduates, I'm guessing. But anyhow. Um, what else was important, though, was that in 1923, when Tyndall signed up for this class, there was a 17-year-old kid who managed to talk his way into Loma Linda. Um, this was hard to do because they did not accept 17-year-olds. However, he prevailed. It was doubly hard to do because he had absolutely no academic track record to point to since he'd been homeschooled and they really hadn't gone to the trouble of fussing over grades and things, evidently. Um, but nonetheless, the 17-year-old kid got into Loma Linda and signed up in the two-year gospel medical missionary evangelist course, the same course Tyndall had taken some years before. During their time together, they ended up as lab partners in a chemistry class, and they got to know each other that way and developed a, a uh, friendship. Um, in 1927, Tyndall was called to the California Conference. It was just a single conference back then and told he could select any conference worker there to be his assistant in establishing a school in which to teach gospel medical missionary company evangelism. This was G.A. Roberts, the president of the California Conference at the time, and he said, John, pick the best guy. We've got one budget. You know, we've got budget for one salary. Pick the best guy. And Tyndall said, you know, there was this kid I went to school with down at Loma Linda. The kid is now all of 21 years old. He has not ever had any de denominational employment and uh, was a total unknown to the conference president who said, absolutely not. We want this thing to succeed. Pick a qualified worker. Don't, don't give me any of this picking, you know, novices stuff. They fought over that for three weeks. Finally, Robert said, why do you want this kid? He says, he's a godly young man. I, I respect him. And besides, he doesn't already think he knows everything. All I have to do is teach him. I don't have to unteach him. Well, so the young man was hired on to work with uh, Elder Tyndall. You may know his name. Elder W.D. Frizee. Elder Frizee worked with Tyndall directly and indirectly for about a decade till 1937 when the school, the training the Field School of Evangelism, that's what it was called. The Field School of Evangelism was discontinued due to complications arising from the splitting of California into two conferences and lack of funds. This was during the Depression, after all. Um, 
And uh, so Frizee was kind of cast on his own, so to speak, uh, for a time. He continued doing evangelistic work. I'm not sure exactly in what status. But by about 1939, he started thinking, if gospel medical missionary evangelism is the tool that God signified to reach the cities, we're never going to do it if there isn't a school someplace that teaches it. And so it was that a little bit later, 1942, he started a little school down south called Wildwood. Well, it took a long time. As near as I can tell, the first person who left Wildwood to do gospel medical missionary evangelism was not until sometime in about the mid to late 60s, from 42 to about 67, 25 years before he actually sent out a gospel medical missionary evangelist. The whole entire first generation, some of you may recognize the names, John, Jans John Jensen, uh, Ron Prairie, uh, Bill Dahl, Wayne Dahl, Wilbur Atwood. I'm not seeing any lights going on, so that's okay. I'll skip that list for you guys. <laughs> Anyhow, those guys, they got a vision from Elder Frizzi, but their vision was institutional. They went out and started other schools and things. Okay. The first evangelist that I have record of, and I'm... I'm sure there's, you know, there's a possibility I'm wrong here. It wasn't until the late 60s. And Elder Frizee said, uh, there, was a, there was actually there was a young minister who had heard a sermon by Frizee and said, I want to go work with this guy. He was warned against it by his conference. He said, no, do that. He says, that would be professional suicide. The guy's practically an offshoot. He says, you don't want to have anything really to do with him. Well, he liked the idea anyhow. He moved down, got transferred somehow down to the Georgia area, worked with Elder Frizee for a couple of years, a year and a half or something like that. I'm not sure exactly. And uh, Elder Frizee said, you know, I have a friend working up in the Southern New England Conference, somebody I worked with years ago. He knows about gospel medical mystery evangelism. I want you guys to, and I don't know the exact details, so I may be misrepresenting this slightly, so don't hold me too tight on this one because I just don't have the information. But I know that the young minister was sent up to Southern New England to work with a guy by the name of O.J. Mills to start a gospel medical missionary company, okay? Uh, while he was there, they took in other volunteers, one of whom was a young lady. And as fairy tales would have it, they fell in love and were married. And you may recognize them. It's Elder Mark Finley and Ernestine, okay? Um, it did not work out to be exactly professional suicide, um, but that was Mark's beginning. And according to his wife, it was the best years of their ministry. They did the best work when they were in company evangelism. Okay? Uh, you may not recognize this guy, um, Brad Thorpe, yes, currently the uh, co-director of the Hope Channel, along with Gary Gibbs. Brad was a young uh, theology student who went down to Wildwood, Elder Frizee, sent him up to work with Mark Finley and O.J. Mills. He worked there for a while, went off, finished college and seminary and whatnot, came up to British Columbia and um, said, somehow he convinced the conference to start gospel medical missionary evangelism. And so he formed this uh, group here. This is the Radiant Living Seminars team. Um, Brad is right up here. Um, this guy here is my brother-in-law. This guy here is my best buddy, Herbie. Uh, yeah, that's Lyndon. Yeah, that's Lyndon. That's Lisa. These two got married. That's um, Rita Malashenko. Yeah, okay. Anyhow, um, they, had a, they had a nice big house. They all lived in there off of three salaries. Um, once again, um, three, three paid positions and a bunch of volunteers. That's the way it's always been. And it was about the same ratio, I used to say, out in southern New England. Uh, about one, one paid position for every six volunteers, okay? It's just always worked that way. It's the way to keep the thing on budget, I guess. Um, Radiant Living lasted from, let's see if I can get this right, was about uh, 78 to, I think, 82, something like that. And then Brad went to Chicago to work with Mark Finley again, and they founded what was known as Lucy, the Lake Union Soul Winning Institute, which was trying to take gospel medical missionary company evangelistic principles and make it a part of the seminary training program. It fell apart after about a year. I don't know the story on that. 
But about 20 years later, three young brothers graduated from Louis Torres training program. And I don't know how, but somehow they ended up in Vancouver and they wanted to do evangelism. Well, somebody up there evidently remembered 20 years before. And that's why these guys are Radiant Living today. You may or may not recognize them. Uh, Yamil, Jeffrey, and Jay Rosario. They've now transferred their operation down to uh, San Jose, I believe it is. Okay. Um, <coughs> none of them had everything together is the problem. Okay. The idea of companies with nurses, evangelists, ministers, canvassers, gospel students, that's a, that's a blessing to me. I'm so happy that's in there now that I have to start a school. Um, <laughs> she's, she's calling for, this is one example, there are other statements. She's calling for what she, she terms often a united work with all the facilities, all the, all the avenues of city work brought together, focused on a single place at a single time. Um, your, your canvassers, your call porters, your Bible workers, your health food stores, your restaurants, your sanitarium outside the city ways. You know, you got to have the outpost where the, the workers, you know, because they're not to live in the city. She's very, very firm on that. Um, one of the major things that was lacking on most occasions was, uh, let's see here, God is calling not only upon ministers, also upon physicians, nurses, canvassers, Bible workers, and other consecrated laymen of varied talents who have a knowledge of present truth to consider the needs of the unwarned cities. Okay. One of the things that's usually been lacking has been what Ellen White would call a center of influence, which in our case, we started with that, trying to work the other direction, and that's why we have the restaurant. So we've got the center of influence. We need to expand and do all the rest. What's happened over the years is that we've tried our restaurants, and they've not been proven to be greatly successful. We've tried our outpost centers, and they've done some interesting things. We have our sanitariums. We have our, our canvassers and our, our, our Bible workers. But we just haven't ever brought it all together. That's basically where I'm at. And I've got a theory that says when you bring all the pieces together, you put the key in and you turn it and the car starts. You know? And I'd rather do that than start you know, trying to get the job done with nothing but a carburetor. You know? <laughs> One garage, I've got a carburetor. Another garage over here, I've got you know, four wheels. You know? Let's put the whole machine together. That's, that's the theory at this point. Um, there are lots of ways that you can help. Uh, canvassers could be the advertisers for the restaurant. The restaurant is the feeder for the sanitarium. Okay? Uh, the sanitarium gives the people in t that work in town a chance to get away and have a break now and then because they get out to the country. Uh, all these things should be working together. Let's put it that way. Okay? Where will it all end? And I'm going to go through with this, and then I'll probably tack on something else to revise it a little bit. God has given us a commission which angels might envy. And I would just like to throw out the thought that if Jesus approached Gabriel and said, Gabriel, would you like to trade places with the young lady in the front row? Gabriel's response would be, in a heartbeat. Because we have an opportunity that has only existed on this planet in all of the universe and only exists in a short period of time in all eternity, and that is to win souls. We have, we have more opportunity to win souls than angels do. And heaven is all about winning souls. So we have a commission which angels might envy. The church has been charged to convey to the world without delay God's saving mercy. This is the trust that he has given us, and it is to be faithfully executed. Medical missionary work is to be done. Thousands upon thousands of humans be human beings are perishing in sin. The compassion of God is moved. All heaven is looking on with intense interest to see what character medical missionary work will assume under supervision of human beings. They saw how it worked out under Jesus, but he's given it to us, and they're watching. What character medical missionary work will assume under the supervision of human beings? Will men make merchandise of God's ordained plan for reaching the dark parts of the earth with a manifestation of his benevolence? Will they cover mercy with selfishness and then call it medical missionary work? I fear we have done that on occasion. 
draw your attention to that word right there, a manifestation of his benevolence. God does not simply call for a proclamation of the truth. He's calling for a manifestation and a demonstration of the truth. That's a big issue with me right now. <laughs> Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself in his church. When the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. And the completeness of Christian character is attained when the impulse to help and bless others springs forth constantly from within. Uh, talked about that the other day, so we won't go into that any further. There is no change in the messages that God has sent in the past. The work in the cities is the essential work for this time. When the cities are worked as God would have them, the result will be the setting in operation of a mighty movement such as we have not yet witnessed. In context, though she doesn't use the term right there, it's clearly the loud cry. If we're serious, we have to focus, we have to have some focus at least. I'm not saying to the exclusion of all other parts of the world, but if we're serious, we've got to make sure that something's being done in the cities. There is to be a working of our cities as they never have been worked. That which should have been done a hundred and twenty years, twenty, yes, more than a hundred and twenty years ago, is now to be done speedily. The work will be more difficult to do now than it would have been years ago, but it will be done. You know, I encounter the question not uncommonly when I talk about this sort of thing. People say, well, that would have been such a great thing to do back then, but do you really think, do you really think we've got to do that now? Do you really think God's going to wait for us to do that now? And my answer is pretty simple, actually. My answer is yes. <laughs> God's, a, God's a real patient guy. Since it involves the only way of finishing the great controversy, <laughs> how do you, how, it's impossible to envision finishing the great controversy without a great final manifestation of the character of God. Of course he's going to wait. He has no other option. So that's my little rant on that subject. Okay, my final quotation and one of my favorites. We shall see the medical mission work broadening and deepening at every point of its progress because of the inflowing of hundreds and thousands of streams until the whole earth is covered as the waters cover the sea. Now that's a paraphrase off of, or an adaptation off of, oh, what is it? Uh, Isaiah and I think one of the other minor prophets, Hezekiah, uh, not Hezekiah, Hosea or something. I forget who it is. But, you know, the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And that's what medical missionary work is. Medical missionary work is the glory of the Lord. So it all ties together and it all makes sense. And that's where my formal presentation ends, but I will take the opportunity to bring you up to date on some other exciting things because it's exciting. Okay. Um, I already mentioned... Elder Finley, and uh, he has a background in that, this kind of work, okay? Uh, I'll toss in another individual who has a, also has a background, and that is Elder Ted Wilson. Elder Wilson wrote his master's, no, his master, I think it's his master's, yeah, probably master's thesis, on Ellen White's Council for City Work. He was in charge of the, um, the uh, New York Metropolitan Project, which included the Appleseed Restaurant back in 8081, I believe it was, something like that, okay? Um, I had occasion, I was speaking at a church in Florida, which turned out to be pastored by Elder Wilson's son-in-law. So I was talking with his daughter. And I had some questions about the Appleseed Project, and I said, you know, has anybody written up the history? And they said, well, just write to, write to my dad. Well, that seems like a rather audacious thing for me to do, but, you know, um, I, I suspect he's a busy guy, and I really didn't know he'd have any time to answer foolish little questions from, you know, people like me. But they encouraged me to, so I wrote him up a short email and mailed it off, and a month and a half later, I got back a very nice response. And he told me the story of the apple seed and some of the behind-the-scenes things and the good points and the bad points and what he would do differently and all that. He ended it with a very nice note, I thought. He said, I still believe, and I'm paraphrasing here, so don't, you know, take this as too much of a quotation, but something along the lines of, I still believe that the Council of Ellen White in regard to working the cities and all the methods that she outlined are necessary, Amen. and we will have to do that. Amen. 
Well, that was encouraging to me. I was, was happy to hear that he held that opinion. About a month and a half later, he was elected general conference president. And about a month ago, he announced at the last Sabbath sermon of ASI, which is a good sermon. I'd encourage you to pull it down off the website and listen to it if you have nothing else to do. Uh, he announced that they're starting what he refers to as a comprehensive urban evangelism emphasis or initiative. And it will be formally announced at Autumn Council this fall. I think it's October 8, I think, something like that. And um, the first step, as always, and, you know, this is, I'm not a real, yeah, I'm more of a fly-by-the-seat-of-the-pants kind of guy, but so this is, you know, whatever. But I respect them, those who move more deliberately than I do. Uh, but the first step, as always, is the formation of a committee to, you know, investigate all the, you know, whatever. Good news is, chairman of the committee is Mark Finley. So we've got people that actually know something about this and have an interest in it, and um, I'm very much encouraged. Amen. And I hope you are too, and I hope you've enjoyed all this, and that will conclude my presentations. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for second chances, third, fourth, fifth, however many it takes, I guess. We thank you for your patience with us and for the promises which, though unclaimed perhaps and unfulfilled for years, still shine brightly when we look at them. We ask that you would add your blessing to your work. Give us wisdom, each in our own place. Everyone from the humblest church member who can still learn how to give simple remedies, all the way to those who are, in fact, in positions of responsibility, who have taken steps to accomplish significant things. I pray your blessing upon their plans and their work. I ask that you will go with us now. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.